Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Philippians. And uh, we're going to dive back into our study after taking a week off last, uh, last Sunday. Uh, we're going to pick up where we left off on Christmas uh, Eve and Christmas morning. And we're going to be looking this morning at two verses that I believe um, are not only two of the most important verses in uh, the book of Philippians, but two of the most important verses in the whole Bible. I'm referring to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, Paul writes, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Lord, we've just asked you to speak to us through that song. Now we ask you to speak to us in this prayer. Lord, we need to hear your voice today um, because there's much confusion in the church uh, at this time in this world regarding the subject matter that these verses address. Lord, we confess that we tend to go to extremes in our understanding of much of life and balance is one of the hardest things to achieve, one of the hardest things to maintain. And I pray that, uh, Lord, you would help us to learn how to be more balanced in our Christian life this morning because of our time in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is that time of year when lots of people hit the gym and they start a new workout routine or maybe they get back after it with a renewed resolve. Anybody feeling sore this morning from your new workout routine? Okay, we got one honest man here. I'm raising my hand. One of the most common New Year's resolutions is to lose weight, to get into shape, which results in health clubs being inundated during the month of January and Gym rats notoriously resent the resolution makers because they have to wait in line for the stair stepper or the treadmill at least until February when like clock, clockwork, the majority of people that start a workout uh, end up leaving. Uh, the fitness industry doesn't mind though because uh, according to the latest statistics, the annual revenue of the fitness industry in America is $27 billion dollars. And worldwide, it's $75 billion. Well, here in America, we who grew up in uh, going to public school learned the importance of daily exercise through PE class or gym class, as we called it. And you either loved gym class or you hated gym class. There was no in between, right? And, uh, but that was when we, you know, every day or a few times a week, we're required to go jog around the track or jump rope or do a certain amount of push-ups or sit-ups or pull-ups or leg lifts or the dreaded squat thrusts, which by the way, they're, they're called burpees today. You know that, right? I was doing some burpees the other day going, I remember this. Where did I do this before? I'm like, wait, these are squat thrusts that I did in junior high and I still hate them. Um, well, this was the way, and it still is the way, to help us grow, to be strong and healthy, and develop good habits of physical fitness, and that was just part of our school system here in America. The same principle applies 
in regards to our spiritual fitness or, or growing strong and healthy in our relationship with God. And, and so this morning, we're going to see what the Bible says about working out spiritually. And this is a perfect time of the year to focus on this subject with everyone uh, thinking about making resolves. Um, we know that the Bible uh, compares the self-discipline we must exercise to stay physically fit to the self-discipline we must exercise to stay spiritually fit. Uh, let me read for you some examples. You can look at these passages with me if you'd like. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, Paul says, Do you not know that those who run in a, ra- run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, Paul says, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Later on in his letter uh, to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, Verse 7, he exhorted Timothy with these words. He said, Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, for it is, this, for, for it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Now, Paul was not denying the value of physical exercise. Uh, we do need to take care of the bodies that God has given us to serve him. But he was simply pointing out that the benefits of physical exercise are minor and temporary compared to the major lasting benefits of spiritual exercise. Our, our, our spiritual fitness, if you will, is far more important than our physical fitness because it benefits us not just now, but for all eternity. Um, I think we'll all be buff in heaven, right? We'll all be in good shape in heaven, right? doesn't mean you just got to be lazy until then and say, well, I'll get there someday, right? I'll let God do it. No, we need to continue to be faithful as stewards of the body that God has given us. But I think the point is just simply here that, that if this is true, that means we should devote as much time or more time and effort to stay in shape spiritually as we do to stay in shape physically. That word that Paul used in 1 Corinthians 9 and here in 1 Timothy 3, the word discipline um, is the Greek word gumnadze, which is uh, the word to train or to exercise. It's the word where we get our English word gymnasium or gymnastics. And so uh, clearly Paul was referring to the rigor and the strain of training uh, that an athlete undergoes in order to compete successfully. And he was stressing how we as believers need to exercise the same kind of discipline and the same kind of self-control that an athlete does in order to be spiritually strong and, and mature and to live holy, godly lives. He said, for this we labor and strive, kapiao, to work to the point of exhaustion, agonizomai, we agonize and struggle to be more holy, more godly, to be more conformed to the image of Christ. And at the same time, Paul made it clear that he didn't labor and strive in his own strength, 
but according to the strength and power that God gave him through his relationship with Jesus Christ. You'll remember these verses, I'm sure, Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 1 Corinthians 15.10, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. And then Colossians 1.29, for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. And so while Paul stressed throughout his letters that discipline, this laboring, this striving is a normal, necessary part of the Christian life, he was careful to emphasize and model that it was a dependent discipline, a dependent discipline. Now, that may sound like an oxymoron, dependent discipline. Seems like a contradiction. But it's an attempt to be faithful to the, to the tension that we see in Scripture between what we know as God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, particularly in the area of the doctrine of salvation. Now, nowhere is this tension more obvious than in today's text. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. These two verses have caused much confusion for Christians throughout the ages. Uh, why is that? Well, because I think we as humans are prone to try to reconcile everything in our minds and rationally do away with paradoxes and contradictions. And whenever we do that, we are inevitably drawn to extremes. And uh, we all tend to emphasize one doctrine or truth of God's word at the expense of some other truth that appears to contradict it. And this happens often in regards to how we view sanctification. Simply put, who is responsible for our sanctification? Is it God or is it us? Those who emphasize God's role in our sanctification um, to the exclusion of our role are historically referred to as quietists. You may have heard of that expression before. Those who emphasize our role to the exclusion of God's role are called pietists. And all of us tend towards one of these two, two extremes, either quietism or pietism. Let me explain a little bit more what this means when it comes to how we think about our sanctification. Some of us tend to be more emotional and mystical, and we focus more on feelings and experiences, and we take more of a submissive, passive role in our spiritual growth. We, we tend towards the, the let go, let God uh, way of thinking. Some of us, uh, on the other hand, tend to be more active, more aggressive uh, in our role in spiritual uh, growth. We, we focus more on Bible study and prayer and church attendance and memorizing scripture and obedience and and, and we might tend more towards the God helps those who help themselves, even though neither of those expressions, let go and let God, and God helps those who help themselves, neither of those are in Scripture. Well, here in Philippians chapter 2, Paul simply laid out the biblical balance that every believer should have in their daily pursuit of becoming more like Christ. If you were to ask the Apostle Paul who is responsible for our sanctification, God or us, he would have answered what? Yes. He didn't try to reconcile what appears to be a contradiction. He equally emphasized the role we play and the role that God plays in our sanctification process. In fact, he placed 
these two apparent contradictory truths side by side, back to back, in his letter here in verse 12 and verse 13. And I think it's extremely critical that we maintain this delicate balance and tension when it comes to our understanding of sanctification. And the reason why I say that is because, as some of you know, in recent years, uh, there has been a movement that has infiltrated many conservative evangelical churches like ours, um, and, and it's been promoting a much more passive approach to sanctification. Uh, some have called this movement the free grace movement or the gospel-centered movement, and um, we know that, that biblical churches have, have always taught that you can't work for your salvation. Are, are we good with that? The Bible's pretty clear about that. But how, now some churches and some pastors are also teaching that you can't work for your sanctification. Hopefully we're not so good with that. But there is kind of some confusion. Wait a minute. Yeah, I believe that, but then I don't believe that. Well, what's happened is the self-discipline and hard work aspect of the Christian life has been called into question and been de-emphasized. And again, I think this is all well-intended. It's, it's really a desire to liberate Christians from trying to be sanctified in the flesh, which was the point of the book of Galatians. That's a good thing. And to guard us from a legalistic, self-righteous, do more, get better, work harder, read more, pray more, performance-based, checklist Christianity. Even that language that I just used, like, makes you go, yeah, that's kind of the way my Christian life feels sometimes. And so it appeals to us. And so the teaching is that the secret, there's the real secret to growing in Christ and overcoming sin is simply remembering who we are in Christ and resting in who we are in Christ. And in some people's minds, if we just dwell on how much God loves us, That should cause us to be so overwhelmed with feelings of joy and delight that we will just naturally begin to change without really any effort on our part. We we really don't have to do a thing. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't always want to obey. Even when I'm considering how much God loves me, um, there's times I I just frankly don't want to obey. And And it's a wrestling match in my life, in my heart, Lord not my will, but yours be done. And see, this passage, I think, in Philippians clearly shows us that that living the Christian life is a mysterious mingling of doing what we need to do and depending on what God has already done and is doing. That's the Christian life. It's a baffling blend of obedience and dependence. It's this perplexing partnership between God and us. And so here in these two verses, by carefully maintaining that delicate balance between our role, our role and God's role in sanctification, I think Paul helped us be able to clearly understand and carefully maintain what I think are the two keys to being a balanced believer. What does it mean to live a balanced Christian life? Two things, really simple. Number one, we need to be obedient, and number two, we need to be dependent. We need to be obedient, and we need to be dependent. And verse 12 is all about our need to be obedient. And verse 13 is all about our need to be dependent. Verse 12 is 
our role in sanctification. Verse 13 is God's role in our sanctification. So let's look at these two verses one at a time. First of all, let's consider the fact that we need to be obedient. We need to be obedient. Verse 12, notice, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That little phrase, so then, tells us that what Paul is about to say is based on what he just said in the previous verses. And I'm referring all the way back to verse 3 through verse 11. You'll remember in verses 3 and 4, Paul exhorted the Philippians to selflessly and humbly consider others more important than themselves and to look out for others' interests above their own. And then in verses 5 through 11, he told them to be like Jesus and explained how Jesus' willingness to leave the glories of heaven and to come to earth in the form of a man, to die on a cross in our place in obedience to the Father's will provides the ultimate illustration or example of what it looks like to humbly, selflessly serve others. And as I mentioned um, when I taught through those verses a few weeks ago at Christmas, Paul didn't include this rich theology about Christ in this letter to instruct the Philippians in theology, it was simply to help them get along with one another. This was never meant to be a a playground for theologians. This was to be intensely personal and practical. And so after describing the incredible example that Christ set for us and and after providing really a beautiful summary of the gospel in verses 5 through 11, Paul was now returning to exhortation mode. So then, okay, in light of that, it's time to apply what I just wrote, what I just described. An old uh, dead commentator, B.H. Moole, summarized this transition uh, with these words. He said, quote, We have still in our ears the celestial music, infinitely sweet and full, of the great paragraph of the incarnation, the journey of the Lord of love from glory to glory by way of the awful cross. May we not now give ourselves a while holy to feast upon the divine poetry at our leisure? Like, is it, in other words, wouldn't it be nice just to go, oh, that's just wonderful. Let's just meditate on that. Let's just dwell on that. Let's just, let's just rest in that. He says, not so. The immediate sequel is that we are to be holy. We are to act in the wonder of so vast an act of love, in the wealth of so great salvation, we are to set spiritually to work. In other words, Paul says, okay, in light of that, it's time to work. It's time to put this into practice in your own life. In other words, in light of our great salvation that was so graciously provided by the obedient life and death of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the work we're to do now is to live a life of obedience ourselves. We're to follow his example. This is how we appropriate our salvation or demonstrate that we've been truly saved. What we're about to see here when he says, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, Obedience is the expected outcome of embracing the gospel. Obedience is the expected outcome of embracing the gospel. In fact, Paul described the gospel in Romans 
his great gospel treatise as the obedience of faith. That's how he described the gospel. It was an obedience of faith. Romans 15, 18, he says, For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. He was the apostle of the Gentiles. What is he, how does he describe their salvation? Well, they, they got saved and it resulted in their obedience in, in what they said and what they did. And of course, we're familiar with what John said in 1 John 2, verse 4, By this we know we've come to know him if we, what? Keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a what? A liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Paul just got done exhorting them, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus who humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we are to walk in the same manner as Christ walked. Now he says, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my absence, not, excuse me, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, what we see here is that Paul loved these people very much. He refers to them as his beloved uh, he says that a couple of times in this letter. But the believers in Philippi had very quickly endeared themselves to Paul by how they had so willingly followed and obeyed the instructions or the commands or the things that he had taught them. And he says, now you've always obeyed, but not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. In other words, uh, Paul was hoping to visit them again and, and help them work through the issues of disunity and selfishness and pride that they were struggling with. But the reality was he didn't know if he would ever see them again. And if you remember back in verse 27 of chapter 1, he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Same, saying the same thing. But hey, I, 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 I want to come, but I may not get there. And so he was telling them that they needed to work things out on their own. You guys need to work this out. You just don't wait for me to get there. You need to work this thing out on your own. But at the same time, he reminded them that they were not alone because they had God to help them put an end to the disunity and the dissension that was within their church. As I was studying and meditating on this phrase, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. I thought this was a good reminder for, for you children who are here this morning, and you young people who are here this morning, you teenagers, that, that, that you need to learn the importance of obeying your parents even when they're not around. Not just in my presence. Don't just do what you're supposed to do when, when, when you're around me, but also do it when I'm not around, in my absence. And uh, by the way, that's how you develop trust, is when your parents see that, that you don't just uh, you know, do what you're supposed to do when you're around them, when they're, you're under their watch fly, but you're able to also do that when you're not around them. And that's how you develop trust, and they give you more freedom to do the things that you'd like to do. And, and those of us as parents, this is a good reminder here that our goal should be to train our kids to obey God, not us. 
Ultimately, that's what we want. We want our children to transfer their obedience from us to God, because guess what? God is always present. We're not. And so we need to treat our, to, to help our kids understand, hey, don't, don't just obey us to obey us. No, you are ultimately obeying God. And uh, treat them to, to, to train them to have a, a God consciousness, that they live in God's presence, as R.C. Sproul made popular, the, the quorum Deo, that we all live before the very face of God. And so he's saying that, hey guys, you need to continue to obey just as you did before um, in my presence, but now much more in my absence. And then he gets to the, to the command. This is the, this is the main command here of verse 12. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, you, you've already been doing this. You've, you've been living a life of obedience and you've been working out your salvation already with fear and trembling, but how much more now, in my absence, you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That phrase or that command, work out, means to continually work on something to bring it to fulfillment or completion. And in this case, the Philippians were to work out the salvation that had been graciously granted them by God through their faith in Christ. In other words, they were to live out their faith by their obedience. Now, where this verse has caused confusion in some people's minds is it sounds like it's teaching a works-based salvation, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, based on everything else that Paul wrote about salvation being a free gift of God based on what Jesus has done for us, not what we do for Jesus, we know that this verse clearly is referring to the aspect of salvation that we call sanctification, okay? Whenever, again, whenever you come to a a verse that might be unclear, you got to go to verses that are clearer uh, and and have the truth that you learn from those verses and bring it to bear on this passage. And so when you think about salvation, that word salvation there, uh, that's a pregnant word. Uh, that's, a, that's a massive concept, the concept of, of salvation, which, which really includes three different aspects or phases. There's justification, there's sanctification, and there's glorification. Those are the three steps, if you will, uh, in our salvation. Uh, justification is, is that one-time event that occurs at the moment of our conversion when God applies the work of Christ to our account and forgives our sin, and declares us righteous and blameless before him. So this is the past aspect of salvation. We have been justified, done, period, completed. Then there's sanctification, which is the gradual, ongoing process that begins the moment we're justified, where the the Spirit of God sets us apart from sin, and grows and matures us and conforms us more into the image of Christ. We are, this is the present aspect of salvation, we are being sanctified right now, and it's ongoing. And then thirdly is glorification, and this is when God will remove our sin permanently and perfectly conform us to the image of Christ. And that's the future aspect of salvation, we will be glorified. Now, Clearly, this is, uh, Paul was talking about sanctification. Why? Because he was writing to people who were already saved. 
They'd already been justified. In fact, he calls them saints in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. And so he's not telling these people they need to get saved. They were already saved. And don't miss the fact that Paul didn't say, work for your salvation, but work what? Out your salvation. Huge difference. This verse is not about gaining salvation, it's about growing in salvation. And if it helps, you might just translate this verse in your mind as Paul was saying, work out your sanctification with fear and trembling. In fact, I would encourage you to maybe even write that in your Bible next to that word salvation because that's the specific aspect of salvation that he is, has in mind when he wrote this. James Montgomery Boyce, I think, says it well here. He said, quote, because you are already saved, because God has already entered your life in the person of the Holy Spirit, because you have his power at work within you, because of these things, you are not now to strive to express this salvation in your conduct. That's what Paul was essentially saying. And, and this was very typical of Paul's writings. He would, he would often emphasize that salvation was not by works, but by grace through faith alone and the finished work of Christ, but then go on to exhort his readers to live out their faith through good works. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 would probably be the most well-known passage where he says this, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's a gift from God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, But then he goes on, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In Titus chapter 3, he says this, verse 5, he saved us. God saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Again, justification is by grace through faith alone. But then the very next verse, verse 8, he says, this is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. So again, we're not saved by good works, we're saved for good works, our good works are proof that God has begun a good work in us. And so while God has promised to complete the work of salvation he began in us, in fact, he promised, uh, he already told the Philippians that in chapter 1, verse 6. He said, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's already promised that, to complete the work of salvation. That doesn't mean we just sit back and wait for him to work out our sanctification or deliver us from sin, if you will. We have the responsibility to to work on, if you will, those areas in our lives that are not pleasing to God and to apply biblical principles in mortifying and overcoming sinful habits in our lives. I was thinking maybe a way to better understand what Paul was saying here or to illustrate what Paul was saying here when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We sometimes say things like, I'm still working out the bugs, or I'm still working out the kinks. Um, That's essentially what sanctification is all about. It's about working out the sinful bugs and kinks in our lives. You got some bugs in your life. I got some kinks in my life. We all got bugs and and kinks, spiritually speaking, and and that's what sanctification is, just working out those bugs, working out those, those kinks. 
We also talk about working out a, a problem or working out our differences. And this may have been specifically what Paul had in mind here, that, that uh, some problems had arisen in the Philippian church and they needed to work them out. Work them out, guys. There were some people who needed to work out their differences. Chapter 4, verse 2, I urge you, Yodi, and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. These two ladies had gotten sideways with one another. They needed to work out their differences. And so, practically speaking, what, what did it look like for the Philippians, and what does it look like for us to work out our salvation? Well, it means that we not do anything out of selfishness or empty conceit. We're just looking at the context here, the water context. Don't do anything out of selfishness or empty conceit. And consider others more important than yourself. Uh, look out for others' interests, not just your own. And the next verse we're going to see in verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. In other words, stop, stop complaining and arguing among yourselves. I mean, these are just a few of the things that, at least for the Philippians, uh, this is what it would look like for them to work out their salvation. What does it look like in your life? Well, what does working out your salvation or sanctification mean in your life? What, what areas in your spiritual life do you need to work on? Are there any problems in your life that you need to work out? Any problems in your relationship with others you need to work out? Any differences you need to work out? Again, what are the sinful bugs and kinks that you need to, need to, to, need to work out of your spiritual life? And we need to also understand here that this doesn't just apply to us individually. It also applies to us corporately. We could ask the same questions uh, in regards to the work here at the church. What, is, what issues do we need to work on as a church? What areas do we need to excel still more? This church has bugs that we're working out. It has some kinks that we're still working out. We've got some problems we're working out. We've got some differences that we need to work out. I mean, that's just life in the church, right? And so this is the idea here of working out your salvation both individually and corporately. I think it's interesting that we can be so critical of the imperfections of our church when we have all sorts of imperfections in our own personal lives, right? I mean, let's be honest. I mean, hey, there's no perfect church. There's no perfect person. We all got stuff we, we're working on and we're trying to get better at and improve in and, and grow and mature in. And so we need to keep that balance. But notice how he says to go about this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. These are the, the, the words from which we get our English words phobia and trauma. This is serious stuff here. Fear and trembling. And they, they describe the, the attitude with which we're to pursue our sanctification. You say, well, what does that, what does that mean? How, what, what does it look like to to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Well, I think first, it means we should have a reverential awe and respect for God, knowing that he is loving and gracious, but he is also holy and just. It means that we should have a, a healthy fear of offending God, because while he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, he's also faithful and just to punish us for our disobedience. And if we're his children, he promises to discipline us, doesn't he? In Hebrews chapter 12. 
And so we should want to avoid displeasing him and having to be chastened by him. And, and, and ultimately, though, this is, this is not a fear of what God might do to us, but what we might do to God. Did you, did you get that? This is not so much a fear of what God might do to us as much as it is a fear of what we might do to God, that we might grieve him, that we might dishonor him, that we might not live up to our calling as his sons and his daughters, as believers in Christ. I think we should also tremble at the thought of disobeying God's word and sinning against him. Isaiah 66, verse 2, God says, To this one I will look, to the one who is humble and contrite of heart and who trembles at my word. Love that. I think this fear and trembling also means that we recognize how weak our flesh is and how powerful Satan and the world are. I think we have a tendency to overestimate the power or overestimate our strength and underestimate the power of Satan and the world. And typically that leads to, that's a bad combination. Overestimating your strength and underestimating Satan's and the world's strength. It's a deadly combination, a dangerous combination. I think the bottom line here are the things that Paul was talking about here, working out our salvation. This is not a casual matter. We need to take our sanctification seriously rather than, than treating our struggle with sin like it's no big deal. Oh yeah, I sinned again, no big deal. No, this is serious stuff. And we need to treat it as serious. And right at the moment when we could very easily feel overwhelmed or defeated by our ongoing battle against sin in our lives and even in our church, Paul reassures us that God hasn't left us alone to work out our salvation by our own self-effort. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He is the one who is ultimately accomplishing the work of salvation in and through us by the power of his spirit that indwells us. And so we need to be obedient, yes. Very clear in verse 12, but we also need to be dependent. We need to be dependent. We've seen our role in sanctification. Now let's consider God's role in sanctification. He says, for it is God who is at work in you. That word work is the word energeia, where we get our English word, obviously, energy. And so what he's saying is that God is the one who energizes us. He enables us. He empowers us. We have God's infinite power in us. The same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead is, is at work in our lives to make us more like Jesus. This is an amazing thought. And Paul prayed for the believers in, in Ephesus that they would understand the surpassing greatness of his power. Verse 19 of Ephesians chapter 1, towards us who believe, these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. It sounds very similar, doesn't it, to 
uh, and God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name and that, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue should confess. The point is, it's that same power that God demonstrated and, and, and used to raise Christ from the dead and exalt him to the highest place in heaven. It's that same, very same power that's, in, that's at work in our lives on a daily basis to sanctify, sanctify us and to grow us and mature us and to make us like Christ. Notice it says, For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What is he talking about there? I think he's saying that God makes us both willing and able to please him. That's what he's saying. God makes us willing and able to please him. He makes his will known to us, and he gives us a desire to do his will, and he gives us the ability to accomplish his will. Another way to say it would be that God makes us want to obey and then enables us to obey. He makes us want to obey and he enables us to obey. He gives us a desire to please him and then he helps us to please him. God expects us to obey, but he also empowers us to obey. Aren't you thankful for that? That God never expects us to do anything that he doesn't also empower us to do it. Well, that's what we're, we can learn from this, this verse. And in regards to our sanctification, uh, what does that look like? Well, the Holy Spirit within us convicts us of, of things or areas that need to change in our lives, then makes us want to change, gives us a desire to change, and then grants us the ability or the power to change. Romans 8, 13 talks about, by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body. That's the doctrine of mortification. You see a sin in your life that needs to die, that needs to be killed before it kills you. And so how do we put that thing to death? How do we mortify it? Well, we do it by the Spirit. We don't do it by the flesh. We don't do it in our own strength. We do it in the strength that the Spirit provides. And so knowing that the Spirit of God is at work in our lives keeps us from, first of all, feeling inadequate because of our failures Sometimes we just, we just feel inadequate because we're such, a, such, such mess-ups, right? But knowing it's the Spirit of God at work in us keeps us from feeling inadequate, but it also keeps us from being arrogant because of our accomplishments. Sometimes we, we, we think, hey, you know, I'm doing pretty good right now, and I did this, and I did this, and, and we can get arrogant. Well, when you understand it's ultimately God who is at work in you, you, don't, you can't be prideful about that. Paul, again, is a great example of all these truths that he's teaching us. In 2 Corinthians 3, 5, Paul says, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Our adequacy is from God. Luke 17, 10. So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Love that. That's, that should be our heart, that, hey, when we do something good, when we accomplish what we were supposed to do, we, we don't take credit for it and pat ourselves on the back, look for an attaboy, say, no, you know, we're just unworthy slaves, we're, we're just doing what we, what we should have done. And like Paul, you may be someone who works really hard, and, and you accomplish great things for him, for the Lord, but you know what? You know that God is the one who deserves all the glory, 1 Corinthians 15.10. Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I am who I am. I've done what I've done. 
by the grace of God. It's all God's grace. I can't take any credit for it. And at the end of the day, what Paul wanted more than anything else was to be pleasing to the Lord. He says, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It wasn't about pleasing him. It was about pleasing the Lord. And that's really what our lives should come down to. It's, it's not about pleasing ourselves. It's about pleasing the Lord. I love 2 Corinthians 5, 9. Paul said that I make it my ambition or I have as my goal, my ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to the Lord. I have it as my ambition, my passion, my goal is to be pleasing to the Lord. Whether I'm here on earth, I'm in heaven, doesn't matter where I am, what I'm doing, I want to be pleasing to the Lord. I want the Lord to be pleased with my life. Several years back, I was meditating on that verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, this this concept of what does it mean to to have a passion, to have it as your ambition to be pleasing to the Lord. And I thought I'd do a little word study and just go through the, the, the Bible, and particularly the New Testament, and, and uh, look at all the places where it talks about pleasing the Lord. And I came over this little sheet of paper that I keep in the front of my Bible, um, and it just has three headings. Um, and this is the way, as I looked at all these verses and they just kind of laid themselves out really under three categories or three headings or kind of a three-step process that, that uh, made sense in my mind. And I just want to share it briefly with you this morning. It, it begins with my daily passion. What is our daily passion? What should be our daily passion? It's to be pleasing to the Lord. And Jesus was the one who said in John 5.30, I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. John 8, 29, that's the goal, to be able to say with Jesus, you want to talk about what does it mean to be like Jesus, it's to be able to say, I always do that which pleases him. I can't say that yet, can you? Uh, That's our goal as Christians, right? That we would grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord so that we would be able to say, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. So that's our daily passion, is to be pleasing to the Lord. Well, secondly, if that's our daily passion, it needs to be our daily pursuit. It needs to be our daily pursuit to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. If our daily passion is to be pleasing to the Lord, we need to know, find out what is pleasing to the Lord. What does it mean to please the Lord? Romans 12, verse 1, Paul said, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what is God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So how do we discern what is pleasing to the Lord? Well, it begins by living our lives as holy sacrifices, pleasing to the Lord, Um, living our lives, just giving our lives up, sacrificing our lives. For, the, for, for, the, for God and his work. Ephesians 5, verse 8, for you, were formerly, for you were formerly darkness, but now you're in the light, and the Lord walk as children of light, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. So there's a learning process here. It's not like you wake up one morning and you, you, you understand everything that pleases the Lord. No, it's, it's a process. And ultimately, we need to go to God's word. How do we know what pleases the Lord? We go to his word, and we find out what pleases him and what displeases him. So it's spending time in his word. It's spending time in prayer to learn 
what is pleasing to the Lord. And so we have a, a daily passion and we have a daily pursuit. And then the last category is our daily prayer. Our daily prayer that the Lord would work in us that which is pleasing to him. And uh, that just comes straight from Hebrews 13, verse 20. I love this. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I mean, that is a, needs to be our prayer. That, that we would, we would uh, that God would work in us that which is pleasing in his sight. The point is prayer, prayer is how we demonstrate our dependence on God. You say, okay, I, I, I see this. I need, to be, I need to be obedient and I need to be dependent. Great. How do I do that? I'll give you one suggestion. Pray. Pray. If you want to obey, you need to pray. It's as simple as that. Easier said than done. A little booklet I read years ago by Al Martin, one of my favorite authors, is titled A Life of Principled Obedience. And while he was talking about the obedience of the psalmist in Psalm 119 and what we could learn from from that, um, he, I think his, his words are equally applicable to what we're learning here in Philippians chapter 2. He said, he's talking about a climate of dependence upon God, that, that if, if we want to, um, what, what, is, what does the climate of a life of obedience look like? Well, he says, uh, it's a climate of dependence, uh, dependence upon God expressed in real prayer. He says, faced with the duty of obeying God's word, the psalmist sensed his weakness and proneness to failure and did, did the only rational thing that he could do under the circumstances, he prayed. With all his heart, he entreated the favor of God. He pleaded that the king would turn his face toward him and give him grace and strength to do his master's will. And then Martin goes on to make application. He says, dear Christian reader, you must learn to cultivate a climate that is conducive to a life of principled obedience, a climate of conscious weakness and total dependence that drives you to pray with your whole heart. In other words, you desperately, you know you desperately need God. You wake up in the morning and your first thought is, Lord, if if you do not help me today, I will disobey you, I will dishonor you, I will displease you, I need your help desperately to obey and to honor you. He says, some believers have much work to do in order to cultivate such a climate, especially much work at the throne of grace, but you would never know it by observing the patterns of their prayer life. You can moan and groan about the paltry progress that you're making in grace, but if you will not pray, the tattered garments of a shoddy life will be the token of God's curse upon your prayerlessness. God has appointed prayer as the great means of exchanging our weakness for his strength. And if you despise this means, he will not prosper you in your Christian walk. You can run from one elder to another and have a hundred counseling sessions a week, but without prayer, you will make no progress in Christian growth or in victory over remaining sin. Some of you are struggling with besetting sins. 
yet you don't come daily, even many times a day, asking God to wither the roots of those sins, pleading with him to pour into your heart and mind and spirit the sin-killing virtue of the death of Christ. You don't cry to God with your whole heart, and yet you wonder why you fall so easily before temptation. You make a half-hearted effort to repent, and you resolve to do better, and you know that tomorrow you'll be right back where you are today, yet you do not cry to God with all your heart. In reality, you are playing games with God and with sin. In other words, you're not working out your salvation with fear and trembling. He says the climate of a life of principled obedience must be marked by dependence upon God expressed in real prayer and by faith in God's promises. Dear Christian, He writes, you must learn how to take God's promises and turn them into fuel for prayer. You must learn how to wrestle in secret with God and how to plead his word. Without this, you will not know a life of principled obedience. Very simply, how obedient we are to God is directly related to how dependent we are on God. How obedient we are to God is directly related to how dependent we are on God. Listen, we need to be obedient. We need to be dependent. And these two are inseparably linked. They're like two sides of the coin. You can't have one without the other. Jerry Bridges, probably best known for his book, the Pursuit of Holiness. This was the book that put him on the map, if you will. And uh, I'll never forget reading it. In the very beginning, the preface, he provides this great illustration how, how we're to view the joint venture that sanctification, sanctification is between us and God. And I think it really pulls together everything that Paul said here in verses 12 and 13. And I'm going to just close with this. He says, a farmer plows his field, sows the seed and fertilizes and cultivates, all the while knowing that in the final analysis, he's utterly dependent on forces outside of himself. He knows he cannot cause the seed to germinate, nor can he produce the rain and sunshine for growing and harvesting the crop. For a successful harvest, he is dependent on these things from God. Yet, the farmer knows that unless he diligently pursues his responsibilities to plow, plant, fertilize, cultivate, he cannot expect a harvest at the end of the season. In a sense, he is in a partnership with God and he will reap its benefits only when he has fulfilled his own responsibilities. Farming is a joint venture between God and the farmer. The farmer cannot do what God must do and God will not do what the farmer should do. And then he says this, we can say just as accurately that the pursuit of holiness is a joint venture between God and the Christian. No one can attain any degree of holiness without God working in his life, but just as surely no one will attain it it without effort on his own part. God has made it possible for us to walk in holiness, but he has given us the responsibility of doing the walking. Or in our text today, He's given us the responsibility to do the working. He does not do that for us. Hopefully that is helpful in clarifying this balance that we must maintain as believers as we pursue becoming more like Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for 
these two verses that you gave us, Lord, to keep us running between the ditches and not falling off into, into either one of those ditches on either side, Lord, but just to stay straight and true. And I pray, Lord, that you would be gracious to us, but we know you've told us that we cannot do anything apart from Christ. But you also say we can do all things through Christ. And how those fit together, Lord, is a mystery in our minds. But, Lord, help us to be faithful to both. And I pray that as we strive according to the strength which you give us, that our lives would be more and more conformed to the image of Christ so that we could be more and more pleasing to you. We pray for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.